All right, Psalm 63 this evening, another Psalm of David. We are told here that this is a Psalm of David and the backdrop, we get a little insight. It says that this was a Psalm written or composed in relationship to when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Uh, If you have ever been to Israel on a tour there, or if you've ever kind of looked at pictures, the wilderness of Judah is very desert-like. Uh, it is hot. Uh, it is a rocky wilderness area. So when you read wilderness, don't picture something like a forest. Uh, the wilderness of Judah is much more desert-like uh, than it is anything else. So this is the idea when it refers to a time when David was in the wilderness of Judah. The idea it was a time when David was in desert-like, dry Hot, difficult circumstances, Uh, there was not much to drink, there was not a lot of vegetation or easy access to food or abundance, and so uh, circumstantially he was in a desert-like condition at that time. And I think it's very picturesque, and David understood that, and he alludes to it as he writes this psalm here. David often took physical and natural experiences and applied them to his spiritual situation as well. And many times there are occasions when we will go through a desert-like experience in our spiritual life, a time when maybe uh, it feels like that we are in a desert, uh, when it feels like it's a little bit more difficult and hard to navigate through. It seems like the struggles are more intense. Maybe it's a time when we're under heat or pressure and it just feels like that our spirit is dry, maybe like we're empty like we're struggling and we're just thirsting to experience God in a way like maybe we once did before, but we don't feel like we are at the current time. And I think some of those at times can be the result of maybe poor decisions we make. And sometimes we make bad choices and we can get ourselves into maybe a desert-like condition as we create some separation between us and the Lord. And so he lets us kind of struggle in that season for a while to get our attention Uh, to make us want to come back towards him. But then there are other times when it has nothing to do with any error in your life or any sin in my life. It's just a prescribed wilderness season by God's design. It's just that one of those times uh, the Bible speaks of us living in peaks and valleys and all different times and seasons. The Bible says there's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. And so sometimes those desert-like experiences are just prescribed by God because those are times when God's developing character, teaching us lessons of faith, allowing us to learn things that we couldn't learn in the abundant green pastures of Psalm 23. Sometimes you also got to be in the valleys of the shadow of death to learn certain things about the Lord and your spiritual life. And typically when there is a drought-like season, that is usually when the roots of a plant drive down much deeper because they drive down looking for a source of water And a lot of times when we go through desert-like experiences, that's kind of what happens to us. It's when our real spiritual roots drive down way deeper into the things of the Lord. uh, And we seek God in a whole different way. And you see that even of David kind of here as he refers to that. He begins this psalm by saying, Oh God, you are my God. He says, Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry, he says, and a thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Take notice, first of all, as David refers to the time in which he was in, he says that he feels like he's in a dry, verse 1 says, a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So the idea there is in the same way in a desert-like climate or situation where it just seems like you can't find satisfaction or fulfillment anywhere. David says, I feel like that's what it's like right now all around me in a spiritual sense. I feel like that the land that I am living in, that it is just deprived of anything that satisfies. Uh, I just feel like that there's just this complete emptiness and, and and like there's just this dryness of anything that's good and spiritual and moral to bring any satisfaction to his soul and i think we all understand that at times of time we find ourselves looking around and as our world continues to grow more dark and more difficult uh, i think we can all the more connect with what david's saying it feels like that we are living in a land 
that is a dry and thirsty land, and it's like there is no refreshment for our soul anymore in this land. There's nothing good to be satisfied. There's nothing decent to drink from, to be renewed, to be encouraged spiritually or morally. It seems like that that is just disappearing more and more. And, and, you know, the interesting thing is as David refers to this wilderness or desert-like season, notice what it caused in David's life. The thing that it caused in David's life is that he went through this desert-like season. It increased David's longing for God. Because as David found himself in a time when it was hard circumstantially, it made the physical land, the present earthly existence around him, a whole lot less appealing. And it kind of caused David in a way to say, you know what, there is nothing here on this earth that is satisfying. There's nothing here that's fulfilling. I can't find anything, no matter what you know, thing I search for, nothing here seems to supply satisfaction or fulfillment. And it actually had an effect in David's life where it increased his longing for God in his life. And can I just say, that's not a bad end result, is it? It's not a bad end result if in a desert-like season that the end result of that is it actually causes us like the roots of a tree to send our roots down deeper spiritually and that wilderness or difficult time increases our longing for God because when this life is hard circumstantially, it does tend to lose its appeal to us. If you've ever gone through a difficult time and you honestly evaluate yourself during that time or can think back during that time, is it not true that usually when we go through the hardest time circumstantially, those are the times when we become most sensitive spiritually? Because when we go through the difficult, dry seasons on this earth, we find ourselves being all the more dissatisfied with everything that's temporal and material. And we find ourselves just kind of feeling like, you know what, I, I, this earth has nothing that appeals to me anymore. And it just causes us to be all the more serious many times and hungry to seek after the things of the Lord. That's one of the things God uses when we go through these desert-like times. And that's what David's referring to here. That's why he says in the midst of this time when he felt like he was in a dry season, in a thirsty land where there was no water, he says, early God, he says, verse 1, I will seek you. The idea of early there speaks of early in the sense of first priority. David says, my first priority, if I'm going to survive this desert-like time, then the first thing I need to do, my first priority is before I do anything else, is I need to seek the Lord. My first priority needs to be spending time with God and pursuing the Lord and seeking from him his presence and his help, his guidance, seeking from him the spiritual strength and renewal that I need to get by each day. He says, God, my soul thirsts for you and my flesh longs for you. David uses this picture here of an actual spiritual longing, like a thirst drive, like a hunger drive. God has created within us a thirst drive, and that thirst drive is intended to actually cause us to pursue drinking to get satisfaction. And the same thing with a hunger drive. It's hardwired within us to cause us to pursue food for fulfillment that we need nourishment for. In the same way, God has created within every human being a spiritual longing, a, a spiritual desire, a spiritual thirst, and nothing else in this earth can satisfy that. The biggest mistake we make is so many times when we live in a land that's not desert-like or difficult, we're trying to grab everything else that's in front of us under the sun in this land, thinking that somehow that will fulfill the spiritual longing, the thirst and hunger that's really in us for God. And we try everything else to fulfill that, right? So we drink from all the different wells of the world and we try this and we feed upon that and we, you know, we, we pursue this, whether it's a relationship or a hobby or you know, business or getting more money or materialism or possessions. And we try all these different things and we're just trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And again and again, we're empty and we're unfulfilled and we're dissatisfied because nothing can fulfill that longing for God but God alone. It's a God-shaped void, a God-shaped desire within us. And every person has a spiritual thirst. Remember, Jesus said to that woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said to her, I tell you, if you drink from this well, you will thirst again. And again, he was pointing this analogy. She had drunk from all different types of wells of the world, and she always was coming up dissatisfied, dissatisfied. But Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give, 
He says, we'll find fulfillment. It will be like a spring of water within your soul. And again, that idea of the spirit of the Lord, like the spiritual water to satisfy our thirst. And here, David just describes this spiritual thirst that he had for God that was driving him to seek God. And, you know, we look at David's heart here and I think, man, would to God that we would have more and more of an ability to resonate with David's words there and say, Lord, that that's what I want to happen inside of me. Lord, I want to have that heart attitude where Psalm 63 verse 1 there would be the way that my heart would be uh, kind of directed by that I early first priority, God, I want to seek you first thing and that my soul would be thirsting for you. And he says, verse 2, so I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. So notice where David looked to find an experience with the Lord. He says, I have looked for you, God. Interesting, he says, in the sanctuary. What was the sanctuary? The sanctuary was the house of the Lord. It was the place where God's people assembled, where worship was taking place. And he says, Lord, that's where I'm looking for you, where the people of God come together in the house of the Lord, when worship is happening, when you're being sought collectively by the people of God. And he says, for there is where, he says, I will see, verse 2, your power and your glory. David understood that somehow God tends to just manifest his presence in a very special way among the house of the Lord and among the people of the Lord when they come together. And I'll tell you, if you want to experience the Lord, if you want to see the Lord, one of the greatest places you can see the Lord and, and see his presence manifested and his power at work and to see his glory in a whole different way is, is to be in the house of the Lord. You, know, you are to do a much better job finding and discovering and experiencing the Lord in his house and among his people than you are anywhere else. Certainly we should pray on our own and we should read the word of God, but there is something very special. The Bible says to us that God inhabits the praises of his people. The Bible tells us that Jesus said to us very directly, whenever two or three, just two or three, gather in my name, I am there in the midst. The idea is that when Jesus sees even two people or three people getting together in the name of the Lord for the cause of Christ to pray together, to, to just spend time in worship or whatever, that they're coming together in Jesus' name, Jesus says, I show up. I'm there in the midst. And there's something very special and wonderful about the sanctuary of the Lord and how the Lord's power and presence is often manifested there. And, you know, in those times when we feel like we're in a desert-like season, those are the times when we need to get to the house of the Lord, when we need to do whatever we need to do to be with the Lord's people. If there's a Bible study, get to the Bible study. If there's a prayer meeting, get to the prayer meeting, because that's where the power and the glory of the Lord is going to be manifested and we're going to be able to experience the Lord and be satisfied, have that thirst within us quenched. David knew the right place to look to experience the Lord. He said, verse 3, because your loving kindness, God, he says, is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name, and my soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips so experiencing david says verse three not just god's kindness not just god's love but he says god your loving kindness your loving kindness that is experiencing the love of god the great love of god and the tremendous kindness of god david said that is better than anything in this life what an interesting thing that david would declare he says lord your loving kindness when i experience your love when i experience your kindness he says that is better than life itself it's better than anything in this life and boy that is so true when you have a genuine experience with the love of god and just the kindness of the lord there is nothing more fulfilling and satisfying than having a true encounter with the lord personally and, and it just beckoned david to want to, to praise the Lord and to honor the Lord. He says, Lord, because your loving kindness is better than life, he says, my lips have to praise you. I, I, I can't not praise you. It just wouldn't seem right, Lord, when you are so good and so kind and so loving in the way that you treat me. 
It's almost like, you know, when someone falls in love, it's very, very, very rare that someone falls in love with someone, experiences a love experience with someone, you know, of the opposite sex, and they, they keep it quiet. Typically, they can't stop talking about that person, right? Oh, I met so-and-so, and oh, oh and, 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 and they just talk about it, right? It's the natural outcome of falling in love and having an experience relationally. They can't stop talking about the person and their time. And, and that's how you can tell. They're having a genuine encounter with a loving experience with another person. Well, look, the same thing is true of the Lord. How can a person truly be experiencing the loving kindness of the Lord and not want to talk about the Lord? Not want to praise the Lord, not want to have an outlet to express that back to him. He says, Lord, because of your loving kindness being better than life, my lips shall praise you. He said, and thus I will bless you while I live. And notice he adds as well there, verse four is another way of expressing his worship unto God. He says, and I will lift up my hands in your name. Again, we see this reference to a part of worship at times not only singing and expressing and blessing God with our words, but actually lifting our hands, the Bible speaks of, unto the Lord. And again, the idea of lifting one's hands, you know, lifting one's hands is the universal sign of what in the world? Surrender, right? <laughs> you don't even have to know the right language. You could be in a foreign country. Somebody sticks a gun at you, right? That's a universal sign. I surrender, <laughs> And this is the idea. When the Bible tells us to lift our hands to the Lord, that, that's the idea is, is as we're worshiping the Lord and blessing the Lord and we're just so overwhelmed with the goodness of God and his kindness and his love, the Bible says that one of the ways sometimes that we continue on in our worship is that even if our words aren't sufficient enough is we just lift our hands to the Lord. Lord, I just want to fully surrender myself in this moment to you lord i just surrender to your authority i surrender lord this is a desert like season this is a hard time lord this is a difficult time and it's a hard but lord i just i'm so thankful that i can just surrender myself to you and that you're good and that you're going to take care of me and it's just a way of us to further express our worship to the lord and of course when we lift our hands to the lord whether in singing and worship or in prayer the idea as well of lifting our hands to the lord is the idea is there's there's nothing in my hands lord i'm empty-handed lord so i need you to give to me everything that i need whether it's spiritually or you know strengthening me or or providing lord i just my hands are empty i bring nothing to the table please lord i'm like a beggar lifting my hands to you and it's just a way of us humbling ourselves before the Lord. You know, I, I think for people at times, they, you know, come into a, a church worship service, they see people lifting their hands, and they look at that and they think, what are these people doing? This is weird. Why are they doing that? Right? And I understand that. I mean, before I knew the Lord, that was, that was my impression. But when you know the Lord, and you're willing to humble yourself before the Lord, you realize that at times, whether you want to admit it or not, your heart is prompted Despite what your pride may be inhibiting you to do, you know that when you're worshiping the Lord, there are times when the Spirit of God is prompting you to just want to lift your hands to the Lord. In the same way that people don't think about it when they get excited at a sporting event, they, yeah, and then their hands accidentally do one of those. What's the same way? When we're worshiping the Lord, our heart at times prompts us to want to do what the Word of God actually commands us to do here, to lift up our hands. And, you know, I just encourage you, don't let your fleshly inhibition keep you back from time to time lifting your hands to the Lord. Just do it. Just lift your hands to the Lord and watch how the Spirit of God just uses that in a very wonderful way to do something in your heart as you're expressing worship to him. And David says here, I will lift my hands, Lord, to you. And look what he says, the result of doing that. His lips praising the Lord, blessing the Lord, lifting his hands to the Lord, celebrating his loving kindness. David says the end result, verse five, and my soul shall be satisfied. David says, when I do that, my soul, that is my inner man, I feel a sense of satisfaction. Now, isn't that interesting? Because what was David describing in verse one? Dissatisfaction, right? He says, in a dry and thirsty land where I'm completely dissatisfied and I cannot seem to find anything to fulfill me. I feel so empty and dissatisfied with everything in this earthly existence. 
David says, but when I worship the Lord and my lips praise him and then my hands begin to lift towards him, I finally feel fulfillment. I finally feel inner satisfaction. That's a blessing that the child of God knows of that sadly people in the world are being robbed of, of experiencing satisfaction in their soul because nothing satisfies like an experience with the Lord and how wonderful that we can do such and our soul can be satisfied, David says, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. And not only did David seek God early, that is first thing, first priority, and I believe first thing, first priority, even in the morning, he says also, verse six, and when I remember you on my bed and I meditate on you in the night watches. So there David's speaking about thinking about God through the evening as he goes to bed at night or as he periodically wakes up through the night. And boy, I'll tell you, that's been a whole new experience as my life's changed into a different season. There was a time I could remember going to bed and I'd fall asleep and then I'd magically wake up and it'd be morning. I can't remember the last time that's happened in my life. Now I'm, I, I can always fall asleep, and some of you can, I can always fall asleep right away from exhaustion, but I wake up all night long now. And you start to realize, I might as well redeem the time. I might as well do something if I'm going to wake up, wake up, wake up. And, and perhaps sometimes the Lord's saying, hey, these are times just rather than be frustrated, how about pray? How about think upon me? How about just use that moment until you drift back into sleep? You know, don't count sheep. Talk to the shepherd. Don't say, oh, I better go get some of this or I got to get some of that. Or let me say, maybe the, the, the medicinal thing is just to spend time with the Lord. Just pray yourself back to sleep. Just spend time with him. Maybe just think upon the Lord and meditate upon him. It's interesting how the Bible speaks of, you know, God giving his beloved rest and rest for our souls. And so if God's let me wake up all night long, I assume, you know, he has some purpose in that. He's allowing it to transpire. And David says here, so Lord, he says, I remember you on my bed. I, when I wake up, I, I try and think about you. I meditate on you. That is to think upon or muse over you in the night watches. Again, David did both morning and and throughout the night, he tried to keep God on his mind. And he says, verse 7, because you have been my help, therefore, in the shadow of your wings, again, like a little chick taking, you know, kind of cover under the motherly hen, hiding under the wings of the mother. He says, Lord, because you have been my help, I will continue to come to you for my protection in my life. Verse 8, he says, and my soul follows close behind you and your right hand upholds me i like that my soul follows close behind you david didn't want the lord to be behind him david didn't want to get out here and say lord come on come along and bless this he said lord no i want to follow you i want to keep the order right i want to be following you wherever you're going lord i just want to be in step with you you go in front of me and i want to follow where you're going and i tell you the the longer that you walk with the Lord, the more you realize the value of when you can just figure out what God's doing and follow him, or you can just figure out where God's going and, and stay in step with the Lord. Because so often the times that we get ourselves into trouble is instead of following close behind the Lord, we're running ahead after this and doing that and chasing that and trying this and trying to make this happen. And all of a sudden we're, we're basically just doing things and we're just asking and hoping God will bless things afterwards. And that's not living by faith. You could reduce living by faith really in a very simple way. Living by faith is basically living without scheming. And, and if you're scheming in any way, trying to make something happen in your flesh, trying to generate it, make it happen, and manipulating it to come to pass, that is not living by faith. That's living by flesh. <laughs> living by faith is living without scheming. It's just, Lord, where are you going? I want to follow close behind you. I just want to stay close to you, Lord. Let my soul follow close behind you cleaving and adhering to what you're doing, staying close to the Lord. And he says, and your right hand will uphold me along the way. But then David says, verse nine, but those who seek my life, the enemies that Saul would send after him, those who seek my life to destroy it, David says, they shall go to the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals, that is pray for the, birds of prey and for the animals of prey the jackals david saw the lord dealing with them and then verse 11 david makes this interesting statement and and you almost could kind of glance over it he says verse 11 but the king 
shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But then David says, but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. And I do like that. The mouth of those who speak lies. They'll be stopped because eventually God comes to a place where in his righteousness, those who are lying and lying, lying, God says, that's it. That needs to stop. And if nobody else is going to shut your mouth, God at times is more than happy to do what needs to do to shut people's mouths. And we can trust the Lord to do that. Our job is to pray. Our job isn't to shut people's mouths. (laughs) Our job is to pray. And if God needs to shut somebody's mouth, just let God shut somebody's mouth, whether they're spewing lies or causing trouble or whatever they may be doing. But notice in verse 11, David makes this statement, the king shall rejoice in God and everyone who swears by him shall glory or or everyone who swears by him trust in the Lord shall celebrate or rejoice. Here's what's interesting. At this point in time, when David is wandering on the wilderness of Judah, more than likely circumstantially, he's not yet on the throne as the king. But yet he refers to himself here in verse 11 As the king, as he's writing this psalm, in a sense, David's making a statement of faith there. Remember, David was called by the Lord, but there was a gap of time between David receiving the anointing of Samuel to be the next king of Israel once Saul was removed. There was a period of time where David did what? Wandered in the caves, in the wilderness, and went through a desert-like season before he actually became enthroned and recognized as the coronated king of Israel. But there was a season of time where David had the calling of God upon his life, but it hadn't culminated in a real and a circumstantial way. And there is at times often a gap of time between when the Lord determines something's going to happen and he actually brings it to pass. And in between those two things, there's a journey of faith in there where we believe the Lord's going to do something, but we let God do it in his time and accomplish in his way and his purposes. And David had to resist scheming and let the Lord deal with Saul, remove Saul from the throne in his way, in his time, in such a way that nobody could question that it was God that dethroned Saul. And that God ultimately said, that is the end of him. I am removing him. And this is my rightful king I'm going to put upon the throne. And David didn't want anyone to ever accuse him or think that somehow he brought that to pass. But David believed in his heart what the Lord was going to do. And he was able to see himself as the king because he recognized what the Lord ultimately was going to bring to pass. You know, there are times in our lives where the Lord puts something into your heart or he does have a plan or his purpose. And maybe he's even revealed that to you. Look, don't try and scheme and force and make it come to pass prematurely or in your own way. You just embrace it as of the Lord and let it ride out by faith and believe who you are and by faith trust what God's going to do and that plan that he's revealed to you and let God ultimately orchestrate it in time. David here in faith makes this beautiful declaration. He says, the king's all, I'm already rejoicing in God because I know what he's going to do. He's made his plan clear to me, David said. I know what his plan is and I celebrate that because I know in his good time he's just going to bring it to pass circumstantially. Psalm 64, David here describes difficulties. Once again, he was dealing with from enemies. He says, hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. And now David's going to describe some of the things that his enemies were doing, working against him. But notice David here in verse one, he says, Lord, protect or preserve my life. He doesn't say from the enemy. Now that's typically how I would play. Lord, please, Preserve me from the enemy. Don't let the enemy do anything hurtful, harmful, or bothersome to me anymore. Lord, keep the enemy away from me. David just says, Lord, preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. He doesn't say, Lord, don't let the enemy hassle me. Don't let the enemy influence or affect me. He says, just don't let me get intimidated. Don't let me become fearful. Don't let me become anxious and begin to act in fear and be overwhelmed in anxiety over what my enemy is doing against me. And look, that's a very important thing because God is going to allow enemies and opposition and enemy-like opposition in different ways to come against our lives from time to time. God is not always going to remove the influence or the attack or the problem of your enemy. But what God can do is God can help you to walk in the spirit of faith rather than be intimidated and live in constant fear and anxiety. And the Bible tells us that what the fear of man is a snare. 
but he who trusts the Lord shall be saved. And so don't be intimidated. There may be things that are going on, but don't give in to the fear of that. Don't let yourself be threatened by the fear of the enemy. You walk by faith and trust that you're more than a conqueror because the Lord is with you and the battle belongs to the Lord, the Bible says. So you continue to walk in faith despite what the enemy is doing or bringing against your life. He then says, verse two, hide me, Lord, from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. He calls them bitter words that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. That is those who are just the blameless, the righteous. Suddenly they shoot at him and they do not fear. Look how David describes what his enemies were doing. Their primary assault was what he describes. They were generating secret plots They were doing works of iniquity in verses three and four describe using their mouths as a weapon, using their mouths as a weapon. He says they sharpen their tongue like a sword. And then he says as well in verse three, they bend their bow to shoot their arrows using bitter and nasty words like arrows and like swords. David says they're using their mouths like a weapon to cause harm to hurt me, to do things, to destroy that which is good. And David saw them working in this way, whatever it was they were doing. And, you know, sometimes words are some of the most dangerous weapons that there are. The things that people can say that are extremely hurtful or painful, that just destroy someone's reputation or tear down their character or lie about a situation or spread misinformation. So he says, Lord, Hide me, preserve me, the idea, he says, from the, the secret plots of the wicked. Interesting how he describes the, the, the using of words in a wicked way in people who were workers of iniquity, opposing the good ways of God. As he describes what they do, he refers to secret plots. Isn't that interesting? Secret plots working in sneaky ways, creating plots and policies that are secret, the wicked do, workers of iniquity. He says again in verse four, they shoot in secret at the blameless. The idea is in, in hidden ways behind closed doors, they begin to push certain you know, agendas and lies and do this and that. And he says, this is how workers and iniquity work. They don't, they don't work out in the open. They, they find secret ways to you know, push agendas. They use words to do destructive things. And I'll tell you, there are lots of people, sadly, today, whether it's in our own personal lives or on levels way bigger than us that are doing that in our culture and in our society, that are using words like weapons and spreading information and lies and wrong ideas that are very, very destructive to our culture, extremely destructive to our culture. You know, I'm going to read to you, this is actually from an an email that I uh, got from FRC. It's a uh, council uh, that I get e- emails from that kind of give an idea of things that are going on. But interesting, statistically, as they're talking about the, the push uh, to try and lie and deceive our young people, uh, this is just part of the email here. It says this. It says, the machine uh, is pushing this lie, is massive and powerful. Public schools are teaching it, entertainment glorifies it, and big tech, interesting, aren't all these things that promote things using words as weapons, and big tech amplify it through social media. Kids are listening to what? Lies. And the results are devastating. An estimated 150,000 American youth now identify as transgender. Listen to this statistic. This I found very interesting, kind of sad and staggering. In 2007, okay, we're not that far off from that. It's 14 years ago. In 2007, there was one clinic in all of America that provided sex change hormones to minors. One clinic in the entire country that did such. One clinic. It goes on to say, today there are now more than 50 clinics providing comprehensive sex change services specifically for children and adolescents, plus countless smaller clinics doling out cross-sex hormones to kids. He goes on to say, Planned Parenthood's new cash cow is prescribing and selling cross-sex hormones to girls seeking gender transition. 
But behind the shocking statistics are an endless string of individual tragedies. American kids are being sold a bill of goods. Instead of fulfillment that they are promised through such things, they are left with infertility, irreversible damage to their body parts and functions, worsened mental health, and a lifetime of medical bills and regrets. And, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg of these kind of things that are being propagated where people, listen, as the word of God says, who are workers of iniquity that have plots that are evil and diabolical and not just opposed to the ways of God, but that are ruinous to the moral fabric work of human society. And they are using their words like weapons and it is an all out assault upon our culture and the things that are being proposed that are bringing about destructive things. Again, just so sad and tragic how words can be so damaging. You know, and as I look at that, it makes me thankful as I look up at verse 11 from the prior psalm where it says, but the mouths of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Please, Lord. Please, Lord. Stop the mouths of those spreading lies that are bringing damaging consequences, particularly to our younger generation, you know, how they need the truth more than ever in this time period. Verse 5 goes on to say of those who are doing these wicked things, they encourage themselves, David says, in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares, interesting, secretly, there it is again, saying, who will see them? In other words, who will catch us? Nobody knows what we're doing. Who's going to find out what our real intention or agenda is? They devise iniquities. We have perfected, they say, a shrewd scheme. We've got a shrewd scheme. Nobody will catch on to what we're doing. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. The idea is deep in the sense of David saying like a deep, dark pit. He's saying there is no, you know, no, no description to the bottomless pit of humanity's wickedness. The heart of man is deceitful above all things, the Bible says, and desperately wicked. And David said the heart of man's like a deep pit, the ideas and thoughts that they can come up with. Verse seven, David says, but God shall shoot at them with an arrow. So David says they're using their words like weapons. It's not our job to you know, fight them in fleshly ways that are inappropriate. He says, but God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded he will make them stumble over their own tongue. I like that. That is, they're saying things, their own foolishness will become their own snare, that they don't genuinely have facts. They're just promoting agendas so often with no factual basis behind it. So he says, God will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away, and all men shall fear and declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider his doing and the righteous david declares in this psalm shall be glad in the lord and trust in him and all the upright in heart shall glory so again what do we do as the righteous i mean we can get overly irritated and bothered and be frustrated and become overly antagonistic and i think there's a balance in a battle to be fought for morality and standing up for righteousness but at the same time the bible says the righteous can be glad in the lord that we can continue to rejoice in the Lord and find our celebration. God, thank you that you remain good, though men are bad. And though the world is getting worse. And that in the last days, Lord, you said perilous times are going to come. But we thank you that we can continue to be glad in you and trust you. That, that you know nobody's dethroning God and we can get upset. Oh, they dethroned this politician. He was better for us. He was better for us. Look, but nobody's dethroning God. That's the good news. <laughs> you can't vote God out of office. Nobody's going to dethrone God. God's continuing to be in control and we can trust in him and let our heart rejoice in that very thing. Psalm 65, we're told another Psalm of David where David declares there, praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion and to you the vow shall be performed. So notice, what is a vow? A vow is a commitment, right? You make a commitment or a promise. That's what a vow is. And David says here that a commitment, a vow, a promise that we make, that that's something that should be performed, notice, to the Lord. 
He says, to you, the vow shall be performed. So if you make a commitment to do something that's right in the sight of the Lord, you make a a vow maritally. You know why a lot of marital vows don't stand up to the test of time? Because people think all they're doing is making vows to one another. That's secondary. You're making a vow unto the Lord. For better, for worse, for sickness and health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. If, if you keep that vow unto the Lord, that's a whole other level of authority. That's a whole other level of, Lord, to you I'm going to perform my marital vow. No matter what's going on circumstantially, I've made a vow to you, Lord, to honor this person till death do us part. And when people keep a vow unto the Lord, that adds a whole other level of strength in their marriage relationship. And look, any vow or commitment or promise that you make... Look, don't rely on keeping it because of someone else because what if you don't then have the same motive because of someone else or they don't thank you enough and all of a sudden you lose interest or motivation? He says, no, we keep our vows and we fulfill and perform our vows unto the Lord. To you, Lord, I made this commitment and so I'm gonna follow through with this commitment because I'm gonna perform this vow unto you. To you, he says, verse two, oh, who hear prayer, God, to you all flesh, Will come. I love how David describes the Lord as the one who hears prayer. And I think sometimes we need that little, almost overlooked but subtle reminder. To you, he says, who hear prayer. What's one of the main reasons why we should be interested in praying? Because God actually hears. I wonder sometimes if why Christians have very little interest in praying is if because for some reason, though we may not say it outwardly, We've almost kind of forgotten or just sort of feel like, mm, I mean, it's a religious routine, but nothing really happens. And the reality is, if almighty God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the king of kings who has limitless power, is hearing and listening anytime I'm praying personally, you're praying personally, or we're praying together collectively, That should give us incredible incentive, should it not, (laughs) to want to pray. God is actually hearing our prayers. He's listening. And he's listening not apathetically, just entertaining us. Not like God hears your prayers like somebody listens to you at at work. And they just... And and the whole mind are thinking, would you just please be quiet? I want to go back to work. (laughs) God's hearing with interest and he's paying attention. And he cares and he wants to act. You know, Jesus, speaking of the heavenly father, said, if you be who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask? And he says, look, if you are disposed to want to bless your own children out of love as a father, he says, how much more the heavenly father is hearing and he's attentive and he wants to help. He says, that's why all flesh should be willing to come to God. He says, verse three, iniquities prevail against me. And as for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. So David here describing, Lord, at times, iniquities, my sinfulness, it prevails against me. I fail. David was someone who was, you know, not bashful about being honest about his own weaknesses and knew from time to time that he had failed as a man. And he says, Lord, at times, my iniquities, they prevail against me. I end up sinning. I do things that I know that I shouldn't do. But as for our transgressions, he says, thankfully, Lord, you provide atonement or forgiveness for them. And think about that. David is declaring that in an Old Testament sense, that on the day of atonement, that priest went in once a year and he applied the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement to cover the sins of the nation. And David says, Lord, you will provide atonement for them, not just in that sense, but ultimately God provided complete atonement for our sins and transgressions through Jesus. God has provided a perfect way for us to be parted forever. By one righteous act, Jesus dealt with the sins of the world forever. His blood is not just like the blood of bulls and goats that covers our sin. His blood, the Bible says, like the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. And how wonderful to know that though at times our iniquities and transgressions, you know, they prevail against us, we lose the battle to sin. And at times sin prevails in our life, but how wonderful to know that God's provided atonement and that through Jesus, we can go to him. First John tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know, the reason for that is because God has a a just 
basis through Jesus to forgive us. God has a just basis. That's why he can always be faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of Christ's death upon the cross for our sins. He says, verse four, blessed there is that man you choose and cause to approach you. That is to be able to approach God. And that certainly was something that the high priest and the priests in the temple were able to do as selected individuals. They alone could approach the presence of God to dwell there in his courts. But thanks be to God, because of what Jesus has done, the Bible tells us that temple veil has been torn. And now every person has the privilege. Those of us who have been chosen by Jesus to be his followers, Jesus said in John 15, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And for those of us who've been chosen by the Lord to know him and to have a relationship with him, we now have that blessed privilege to be able to approach him directly. That you don't have to have someone approach God for you, that you can approach God yourself because of the blood of Jesus. You can approach him directly. You have a privilege really greater than the priests had in the Old Testament to be able to approach the Lord, to have access directly to him. He says, blessed is that man, Lord, whom you choose and you cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts, that is to spend time in God's presence. We shall be satisfied, he says, with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. And by awesome deeds in righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation. So when we pray, he says back in verse two, God, you hear when we prayer, when we pray, and look what he says, verse five, and Lord, by awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer. So God hears our prayers, but here David declares by faith, and Lord, you answer us by awesome deeds. That is the awesome works of God, the God of our salvation. And that's why he declares verse five, you therefore are the confidence of, of all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas. That is, God is the source of trust. The confidence in God we can have is unlike any confidence we can put in any other person or any other thing. He says, Lord, you are the source of trust. You are the confidence of all on the ends of the earth. We can all put our confidence in you because of who you are. And then he describes why we can have confidence in God in the next verses. Because he is the God, notice verse 6, who established the mountains by his strength. You know anybody who set up a few mountains recently? I don't know any person that can do that. I don't know any government that can do that. But God established the mountains by his strength. That's the God that you pray to. That's the God that you can have confidence in. The God who can establish mountains clothed with power. You who still the noise of the seas. The noise of their ways. What did Jesus do in Mark chapter four? It tells us that he was on the boat with his disciples and the storm came and he was asleep and they went and woke him up. Lord, don't you care? We're perishing, we're perishing. And it says that Jesus woke up and he simply spoke to the storm and said, be quiet. Literally, he just said, be muzzled, the Greek is. And literally everything on the sea went calm. The waves ceased, the winds went away, the storm stopped in an instant. And the disciples seeing Jesus do this were amazed. And as the water was dripping off their face, they said, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him, obey him? That's the power of the Lord, that, that even creation obeys him because he is the creator and has power over all things. So again, he can establish mountains. He can still the waves so they don't overwhelm us. He says, verse eight, they also dwell in the farthest parts of the earth are afraid of you. That is all over creation. There are people who live in the fear of God. You make the outgoings of the morning and the evening rejoice. The outgoings of the morning and the evening, the idea is from sunrise to sunset, from east to west, he says, the farthest parts of the earth. There are people who are living in the fear of the Lord because they know he's powerful. He then says, verse nine, Lord, you visit the earth, you water it, you greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water and you provide their grain for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. If God didn't soften the earth with the hydraulic cycle and the rains that come, then there would never be the ability to plant seed and for things to fertilize and crops to produce. He says, Lord, this is all you're, you're doing. 
You didn't just create everything. You take care of everything. Again, God's ability through his care for even just his creation, the physical earth. He says, and you bless its growth. That is, you make it produce. You make the crops grow and produce. You crown the year with your goodness and your paths drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness and the little hills rejoice on every side. And the pastures are clothed with flocks. That is, there's an abundance of flocks because God brings the abundance to the flock. And the valleys also are covered with grain. God's caused abundant production and they shout for joy and they also sing. So David just reflects upon how God in his love and care, as well as in his power, is the one who makes things produce and makes them happen. That's what he's describing there in verses 9 through 13, how God, even in creation, causes the crops to produce and the land to yield and things to become productive. He says, Lord, you're the one that does that. You bless its growth. Verse 11, he says, you crown the year with your goodness. What David's saying is, Lord, if you don't do that, nothing would happen. Lord, the only reason why crops can be produced and herds can increase and any form of blessing can happen is if you cause it to come to pass. David knew it was God's involvement that makes blessing come to pass. And so important, you know, David here, you bless its growth, Lord, you crown the year with your goodness. See, if God doesn't do that, then there is no blessing, there is no growth, and and there is no favor upon anything. And David understood that's what we have to ask for, God. We have to ask for you to bless. We have to ask for your favor and for you to, to bring that to pass because if you don't do that, then everything will be like a dry, barren, unfertile experience. It's only as you bless that anything can come to pass. And you know, that same reality, even it's a natural reality, speaks very picturesque of the truths of our spiritual lives as well. You know, when the Bible speaks of our spiritual experience, it speaks of Jesus being a vine and us being the branches. And if we abide in him, we bear much fruit. The same idea, an agricultural picture. And that we want to grow spiritually. We want to see production and fruit. And the only way we're ever going to see that is if the Lord blesses. If the blessing of the Lord comes, then spiritual growth and fruitfulness comes to pass. 